the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh boy, we're going to be on holy ground this morning. I'm excited about this lesson and I hope I can get you excited about it because it's definitely, <laughs> definitely holy ground. We come to Genesis chapter 22. I guess it's probably going to take us another three lessons to get through this amazing chapter, but it will be worth it. In this chapter, we have one of the clearest pictures in all of the Word of God which foreshadow the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary, along with Exodus chapter 12 and Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. If you've never read those three chapters, you need to. Exodus 12, Passover lamb, Psalm 22, and Isaiah 53, along with those three chapters, Genesis chapter 22 stands as one of the high mountain peaks of revelation concerning the redemptive work, the salvation work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on Calvary. For through Abraham's very obedient willingness to sacrifice his only beloved son Isaac, we are given a beautiful picture indeed in advance of Christ's salvation work on the cross of Calvary as well as his resurrection from the dead. So is Jesus in Genesis? Indeed he is. We have seen him in a number of ways. I mean, he was pictured in the ark. He was pictured by the animal which was slain so that Adam and Eve could be covered um, and blood was shed so they could be covered, their sin could be covered. We've seen him in a number of ways. We've seen his death at the hand, uh, hand of his own brethren when um, Cain slayed his righteous brother Abel. And again now we see him in the life of Isaac, very much so in the life of Isaac, and especially here in Genesis 22. Do we see his salvation work and also his resurrection from the dead? Now in our consideration of just the first six verses of this chapter. That's all we're going to have time to look at today in our lesson entitled Clear Vision. And you'll wonder why did you title it that, Clear Vision? It's because we have a clear vision in this chapter of Christ on the cross at Calvary. Also because the sacrifice of Isaac was done in the land of Moriah. And Moriah in Hebrew means clear vision. So that's where we get our title. As you can see, we're going to look at three main sections. We'll start out by looking at the great test given to Abraham in verses 1 and 2. Then we're going to divert for a little while and call, talk about the great love um, that we see because for the first time in all the Word of God, we find the word love in Genesis 22, verse 2. First time the word love appears in the Bible, and it's very, very significant. Then we will go back to our verses and look at great faith. And you can see I've got nine subdivisions under that, a third division, but we're only going to have time to cover the first three this morning. So we'll look at the preparations, the place, and the parting today. And Lord willing, next week we'll look at the problem, the prediction, the proof, the prevention, the provisions, and the praise. So let's begin by looking at first part one, great test. And for this we look at Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. The scripture says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he, God, said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah 
and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Abraham had now been enrolled in God's school of faith for some 50 to 55 years, and yet we find he was still being stretched by God with new experiences. And this, I think, just goes to teach us that we are never too old to encounter new challenges. We are never too old to either pass or flunk new tests which God brings into our lives. We are never too old to fight new battles, and we are never too old, I don't care how much you tell me your brain is uh, hardening, (laughs) we're never too old to learn deeper truths. After some 30 years of peace and tranquility living in the land of the Philistines, that's what we saw when we closed up last time, you know, at verse 34 of chapter 21, living some 30 years in in peace. You know, he had made a peace pact with Abimelech. Abraham might have thought that he would just possibly have a smooth road the rest of his life until his grave. You know, no more bumps to climb, no more valleys to descend, no more lessons to have to learn. After all, if we look back over his life just briefly, we're going to do that, we find that he indeed had more than his share of tests, even by this time in his life. It's interesting, as I was studying two different Bible commentators, how one of them, Warren Wearsby, labeled some of the tests in Abraham's life, beginning with the letter F. He gave them some names. And then I looked at another commentator named uh, John Butler, and he picked up on those names by um, Warren Wearsby and added a whole lot more. So we have actually 25 tests in Abraham's life, and every one of them starts with the letter F. as really kind of cute, and I can't even get them all on there. But we'll start by looking at, I, I don't have time to explain all this, but when I have your notes at the end of the year, you can look at all these and see what they were all about. But we have the forsaking test, when he had to forsake his family and Ur and, and leave. He, he sort of semi-passed that test because he didn't quite leave everybody. He took his dad along and then he delayed in Haran. But he sort of half-passed that test. Then there was the famine test. Uh, when there was a famine in the land of Canaan, and what did Abraham do? Did he pass that test? No, he flunked that test because he went down into Egypt. Then there was the falsehood test. When he was in Egypt, he lied about his true relationship with Sarah. Did he pass that test? No, he did not pass that test. Then there was the fellowship test. He was separated from a fellow believer, Lot. Did he pass that test? Yes, he did. First choice test. He gave Lot first choice of the land. He passed that test. The forgiveness test. He did um, forgive selfish, worldly Lot when he was captured by King Ketelamer. He, he went, you know, risked his own life to go and rescue him. He forgave him, and he passed that test. Then there was the fight test. He proved himself brave, very brave, when he went against King Ketelamer and an army much larger than his in order to rescue Lot and all the citizens of Sodom. So he passed that test. There was a financial test when he willingly gave a tithe of all that he possessed to the priest of the Most High God named Melchizedek. So he passed that test. There was the fortune test. He resisted the temptation to take uh, the king of Sodom's offer, you know, of the spoil of warfare. So he passed that test. There was the fear test. He was a little bit fear about re- uh, fearful about retaliation from King Ketelamer and the uh, Eastern Coalition. But after God spoke to him and said, Fear not, 
he didn't fear. So he passed that test also. Then there was the big one, the faith test. And it says that Abraham believed God um, regarding the coming Redeemer, the seed of the woman, and it was counted as to, unto him as righteousness. Or, you know, he was, he was justified by faith. And he passed that test, the most important test of all. There was the faithfulness test as he waited patiently by the animals that he had slain for God to confirm his covenant. He passed that test. Then there was the fatherhood test. Well, Abraham did not pass this test because he did not wait on God to become a father. He had a son by way of who? Hagar. So he flunked that test. There was the forbearance test. This was a biggie. I'm not sure if he passed this one or not. He had to <laughs> endure living with Sarah and Hagar for 17 years. And you know there was obviously much friction between those two women even after Hagar had returned when she ran away that time and came back. Uh, we think that he probably passed this test, but we're not real sure. Then there was the flesh test. Abraham obeyed God by having himself circumcised as well as all of the males in his household. There was the friendship test. He showed great friendship to the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ who came to visit him along with two angels. He passed that test so much that the Lord even called him his friend. There was the fervency test. Remember when he very fervently and boldly interceded with the Lord on behalf of Lot and Sodom. He passed that test with flying colors. Then, because he had not passed the falsehood test the first time, he had it a repeat test. And guess what? The second time he had the falsehood test, he again flunked because he went to Gerar and he also lied about his true relationship with Sarah. But the good news is that he never ever, he repented and he never ever did this again. He never failed that test again. Well, then there was the farewell test. And Abraham got a A and A plus on this test because he obeyed God, although it was very grievous for him to do this, he obeyed God by casting out Hagar and his son Ishmael. There was also the flattery test. Even though Abimelech greatly flattered Abraham by saying, God is with thee in all that thou doest, yet Abraham first reproved him for the evil which had been done at one of his wells before he went ahead and made a peace covenant with Abimelech. So he passed that test. Then there is a test we come to today, and it is called the fiery test. Abraham, as we just read in the scripture, was called upon by God to offer his son Isaac upon a fiery altar. And this is the uh, uh, test we're going to address in this lesson and in next week's lesson. And Abraham, again, passed with flying colors. He got an A++ on this test. Now, there are a few more tests that we'll get to in the... Um, Future, thank you. In the future lessons, we'll look at a funeral test because Sarah dies and he goes through this big ordeal to get her buried. And then there's going to be the father-in-law test as he finds a wife for his son Isaac. There will be a family test and then a fidelity test. But we'll talk about those when we get to them. So Abraham's life, just like every Christian's life, was filled by tests. Have you had some tests in your life? <laughs> maybe more than 25. Who knows? If you start going through and looking at all the tests, maybe you could label them all with the same letter too. See what you could come up with. I think I challenge you to do that in your homework. Some of them 
<laughs> Some of them Abraham passed. Most of them, in fact, Abraham passed. And so he really did far better than most of us. However, some of them he failed. And although he had to live with the consequences of those failures, yet he did not quit God's school of faith. He would repent, and then he would keep moving on forward, forward, forward. The greatest failure of all, you know, in a man's life or a woman's life or a young person's life is when they just throw up their hands and they quit God's school of faith. You know, there shouldn't be dropouts in God's school of faith. But some people will just quit along the way, and they'll say, I just can't do it. It's too difficult. The tests are just too hard. And admittedly, the tests of the Christian life are indeed very difficult at times. However, as we've been learning throughout our study of Abraham's life, God never calls upon his children to take a test in his school without first equipping them for that test. And whether they use that available equipment or not, will make the difference on whether they pass that test, how they do on that test. Now, in the case of um, Abraham here in Genesis 22, God had equipped Abraham with years and years of experience in learning to trust him and to trust in his promises. It was, you see, Abraham's past spiritual growth which enabled him to pass this fiery test with flying colors. Abraham simply knew that even if he couldn't understand, because he didn't always understand everything that God told him or God commanded him to do, even if he couldn't understand some of God's commands, he had learned through experience that they always had a purpose. God was, you know, he always had a purpose in everything he did. He, he isn't just a flippant God who decides to do something foolish. There's always a reason. Abraham had also learned that it was always, always the best thing to do to simply obey. Even if he didn't understand, just obey. Furthermore, God's promises regarding Isaac would be fulfilled because he had also learned that God always keeps his word. Had he not kept his word that he would have a son? through Sarah, even though both of them had been reproductively dead in their bodies. He, God keeps his word. So Abraham knew that somehow God would keep his promises no matter what he was asked to do with Isaac. So it was these learned truths about God and about God's word which enabled Abraham not to crumble to pieces when God suddenly disrupted his a tranquil life there in the land of the Philistines with an unbelievable command. I mean, can you imagine getting a command like this? He was told to take his son, his only son Isaac, you know, the one he had waited a hundred years to have, and he was ta to take him to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. I mean, it, doesn't that sound like something more you would expect out of Satan? than out of God. I mean, it sounds like something that we would expect of the a pagan um, false god, such as Molech, who, who demanded the sacrifice of people's children. It doesn't sound like something that would come from God at all. Yet the wonder of it all is that Abraham had come to know the voice 
of his God. After all, don't the sheep know the vo- their voice of their shepherd? He had come to know God's voice so well that he had no doubt whatsoever that this was God speaking to him and not Satan. Now, as we learn from verse 1, this was a deliberate test of Abraham by God. Now, I know the King James Bible says that God did tempt Abraham, but the Hebrew word for tempt is nasah, N-A-S-A-H. I need to put that up here. N-A-S-A-H. And it really means to prove or to test. This is the first time that this word appears in the Scripture. We're going to see a number of first-time words in this chapter. But this is the first time we have this word to prove or to test. Now, please make sure you understand that it does not at all mean that God tempted Abraham to do something evil because we know clearly from James 1.13, the book of James in the New Testament, that no man can say he is tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. That means he doesn't tempt Abraham, and he doesn't tempt us. God cannot be tempted, neither can he tempt anyone. The word Nassah is generally translated elsewhere in the Old Testament, as I said before, as to prove. God desired, you see, to prove Abraham's absolute devotion to him. He desired to test or to try Abraham's reverential fear of him to see if he had reached the point in his spiritual walk with the Lord where he was absolutely willing to sacrifice anything for God even that which he loved the most. Now, the test itself here is actually a great compliment of Abraham because God does not give such severe tests unless his student has grown really strong in his faith. Uh, The toughest tests, we could say, are for God's strongest saints. Sometimes we have things backwards when we think about it. Too often we think that those who are experiencing really tough tests in their spiritual lives are doing so because they are being chastised for some sin in their life. And that's, that's unfair. That's not always the case. While it is certainly true that not all difficulties that we encounter are necessarily tests from God. I mean, you know, sometimes what we encounter as far as, far as difficulties and trials are concerned, sometimes those are just the consequences of our own disobedience, such as Abraham's experiences down in Egypt and also in Gerar when he had lied about Sarah. Or sometimes they are merely the consequences of living in a cursed world, you know, where sin reigns and where the God of this world is Satan and people die uh, and where nature can be very cruel at times. You know, we have hurricanes and and, uh, earthquakes and things like that. But yet, on the other hand, some tests are truly tests from God. So it's really a compliment and a good thing when God sends us a test because he is demonstrating his desire, you see, to promote us in his school of faith. 
He knows that we are ready for that test or else he wouldn't send it our way. God knew that Abraham was ready for the incredible fiery test of Genesis chapter 22. But Abraham himself needed to learn that he was ready for it. You see, the purpose of, of the test is actually given to us. We're, we'll look at this next week. But the purpose of the test is really given to us in verse 12, where the angel of the Lord, who again we will find out is Christ himself, pre-incarnate Christ. But um, the angel of the Lord who stopped Abraham's hand, you know, just as he was about to thrust the knife down into his son, the angel of the Lord said, Now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And the from me tells us who is he? <laughs> he is God himself. That's Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. We well, see, God did not really need to learn where Abraham stood with regard to his faith because he's God. And he knows then from the beginning. So he already knew that Abraham would pass this test. He already knew that Abraham indeed um, feared him and that he would not withhold his son, his only son, from him. However, Abraham himself needed to see how he would respond to this test. He needed to learn his own heart in this matter. And also, he needed to give this, this whole test here so that you and I would have this beautiful, clear vision of the one day coming sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham did not have to give his son. He was stopped. He was prevented from having to give him. But God did willingly give his son. He did die for our sins. Now, the words of Genesis 22, 1, after these things, you see those three words, after these things, they come after the many days of Genesis 21, 34. See, it said that Abraham sojourned in the Philistines' land many days. And we talked about the fact that those many days were, ab were probably something like 25 to 30 years. And now it was after those things that this command to Abraham came. So we know that this was many, many years after a, um, Isaac was weaned from his mother, which is what we had learned about in the beginning of chapter 21, the chapter which just preceded this one. Uh, and we also find Isaac in chapter 22 able to walk a considerable journey, a three days journey, something like 60 miles from um, the land of the Philistines up to the land of Moriah was about 60 miles. And he was also able to carry a considerable load of wood up a mountain. We'll get to that a little later. So what can we say here? Isaac was no longer a child, but he was a full-grown man. And we'll discuss his age a little bit later in this lesson. But at any rate, after many years with no recorded word from heaven and no major tests in his life, suddenly one day Abraham heard God speak his name, Abraham. And as we said, he knew whose voice it was. And so he obediently and immediately responded appropriately by saying what? Behold, here I am. It's always a good way to answer God. I'm here. I'm listening. It was really a slow and gentle approach by God here at the beginning, um, which had a, a way of somewhat cushioning 
the stark reality of the words that then followed in verse 2. As we look at verse 2, I want to do so very carefully because there's a whole lot here to digest. We notice, first of all, how very clear God was in telling Abraham who it was that he was to to offer for the burnt offering. There are five ways that God made it abundantly, abundantly clear that Isaac was the one who was to be offered. Notice God said, Take now, one, thy son, two, thine only son, three, Isaac, four, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him, that's the fifth one, there. Five ways in which God made it very, very clear who it was that was to be offered. When God gives us a difficult test or an unusual command, and I don't think anybody could deny that this was an unusual command, he will make it extremely clear. There was no doubt in Abraham's mind at all who God wanted him to offer. He knew that God was asking for Isaac. Now, the term, thine only son, is repeated again in verse 12, and it's repeated again in verse 16. We find it three times, thine only son. Now, this shows us, and notice the word only. This shows us, you see, why it was so important in the previous chapter for Abraham to have already cast out Ishmael, the son of the bondwoman. Abraham had to understand, you see, that in God's eyes, he only had one legitimate son, and who was he? Isaac, the the miracle-born son of his true wife, Sarah. Isaac was the only son of the covenant promises. Abraham had to fully understand that his willingness to obey God by offering Isaac as a burnt sacrifice meant that there was no way that then God's covenant promises could be fulfilled through Ishmael. You know, there was no plan B. There was no second option. He couldn't turn back and say, well, all those promises will now be fulfilled in Ishmael. Ishmael was out of the picture. As far as God was concerned, Abraham had how many sons? One son. So Abraham was being asked to give his all. See the importance of that, to give his all. The importance, just like we see in, you know, later on when the Lord stressed to us how wonderful it was that the widow was willing to give to her two mites. Doesn't sound like much, but it was everything she had. Now, the word only in regard to Abraham's son, Isaac, reminds us of another only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God's only son. In fact, only Isaac and the Lord Jesus Christ, those two alone in all the scripture are, are specifically referred to by the unique term only begotten son. You know where it says that Isaac was the only begotten son? It's in Hebrews. Is this it? No. I, guess I, I thought I had it on there, but I don't. In Hebrews 11:17, you might want to jot that down. Isaac is referred to as the only begotten son in Hebrews 11:17, and who knows 
where the Lord Jesus is referred to as the only begotten Son. I, I heard mumbling, but I could... Right, yes, John three sixteen. They are the only two in all the Word of God. So is Isaac a picture of Christ? A, you know, a type, a prophetic picture in type of Christ? Yes, he is. The Scripture tells us he is, but then we have clues like this as well. Okay, let's move on now. That was great faith. Let's talk next about great love. After referring to Isaac as Abraham's son and then his only son, God next spoke of him as the one whom Abraham loved. And this is the first time, as I said earlier, that the word love appears in all of the word of God. Abraham's love was centered on this very special son. His hopes were centered on Isaac. All the promises were centered on Isaac. Isaac was clearly the dearly beloved of his father, just as the Lord Jesus was the well-beloved of his father. Actually, um, it's interesting to find that the first time that this word is found, love, in the Bible, when you think of love, what relationship do you normally think of when you think of the word love? Somebody? Marriage, right. You think of a, a, fa, a husband's love for his wife or a wife's love for her husband. Or what else might you think of? Right, mother and child. I mean, those are usually the two you think of when you think of love. A married couple or a mother's love for her children. And yet, the first time, the word love, and it's always important when we see a word appear for the first time in Scripture. Because that gives us the idea of that word throughout the rest of the Bible. So it's critical that we find out what this love has to do with the first time it appears in the Scripture. And it speaks not of a man's love for his wife or a wife's love for her husband, not of a mother's love for her child, but it speaks of a father's love for his son. Interesting, isn't it? Also, instead... Um, Instead of the first, no, that's not what I meant to say. Also, the first time that we find the word love, it is used in connection with the sacrificial offering of that one and only begotten loved son. So again, you see how we have a clear vision to see how God was producing here a beautiful picture in advance of his own love for his own son. It's a picture of the love of God the Father for God the Son. That love, which exists in reality, you know, between all three persons of the Godhead. You know, there's the love also between God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But that is not only the root, but it is the foundation for all other types of love. The love between a man and a woman, the love between a mother and her child and the child and its mother, the love between friends, etc. All love has its source in God's love. Where did love originate? Between the members of the triune Godhead. The love between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit as well. In fact, the Bible tells us that God himself is what? God himself is love. So we have, we have learned of the first mention of love in 
the Old Testament. Actually, it's, of course, in the whole Bible, but let's say in the Old Testament, and it has to do with the love of an earthly father for his only son. It has to do with a love which was to suffer the most severe agony of soul possible because that father was to offer up that beloved son as a burnt offering. And this is indeed a recognized picture and type of God the Father sacrificing his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at something else. What about the first use of the word love in the New Testament? You know, the New Testament begins by giving us four portraits of the Lord Jesus Christ in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So let's look at each one of those four pictures of Christ and see where the word love appears for the first time. In Matthew, where the main portrait of Christ is as the king, the king of the Jews, that's how he's mainly portrayed in Matthew's gospel. The first time the word love appears is in Matthew 3.17. A voice from heaven speaks out, and it says of Jesus Christ, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, guess what? This is exactly the same time or same event where the word love appears in in Mark and Luke. You know, those three are called the synoptic gospels because they're pretty much alike in a lot of ways. Uh, Mark shows us Jesus Christ as the servant of God. Luke talks about Christ as the son of man. All three of those Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first time we read of the word love, it's when God the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Again then, the first time we see love, it's speaking about a father's love for his son. Now, what about John's Gospel? John presents Jesus as the Son of God. And John's gospel contains the word love more times than all the other three gospels put together. So where do you think that love first appears in John's gospel? Anyone want to take a guess? Hmm? That's in 1 John. That's in 1 John. You guys have already said this verse once, but here it is again. The most famous verse in all the scripture. The first time that we read of the word love in the gospel of John is in John 3.16. For God so loved his son. For God so loved the world that what was he willing to do? Give that beloved son the one he loved so much, the one in whom he was so well pleased. What does that tell us about his love for us? I mean, I got all excited when I found that. I thought, wow, the picture of his love is between the three members of the Trinity, and yet he loved us so much that he was willing to give his only begotten son. That, to me, is just amazing, and it just gives me goosebumps. I hope you can see how much God loves us. It says in 1 John 4, 9 and 10, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins. 
Does that tell you how much God loves you? Tells me a lot about his love for us. Okay, third section, moving right along here. Great faith. And now we're going to look at just the first three Ps. First three of nine Ps. We'll look at the preparations, the place, and the parting. We'll start with the preparations. And for this, I'm just going to read part of verse 3. It says, And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering. Let's stop right there. Clave the wood, by the way, means split the wood. Warren Wearsby says this. He says, quote, Our faith is not really tested until God asks us to bear what seems unbearable, to do what seems unreasonable, and to expect what seems impossible. Whether you look at Joseph in prison or Moses and Israel at the Red Sea, David in the cave, or Jesus at Calvary, the lesson is the same. We live by promises, not by explanations. End of quote. Abraham, you notice, was at, he was offered absolutely no explanation at all from God for this request. I mean, my first question would have been, why? <laughs> why? Give me a reason. But Abraham doesn't ask. You know, this request to all human logic, you have to admit, appears very, very unreasonable and even evil. So Abraham's immediate response, you know, he rose up early the next morning to, to begin obeying. This response was so noble that it's held up as one of the single greatest acts of obedience, second only to the unparalleled obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ when he willingly left heaven and came to earth to take on the form of a man and die a humble death, even the death of the cross. To Abraham, you see, it would look like God was going to do away with every promise that he had ever made to him because they all centered on Isaac, his son and his future descendants through Isaac. Also, what he was being asked to do would involve great suffering. Not only would it involve great suffering for Abraham to have to kill his son, but think of the suffering that, that Isaac would have to encounter, you know, being killed. That's not a whole lot of fun. And what about the suffering of Sarah? She's not in this account, but I don't imagine that Abraham told her what he was going to do. <laughs> she would have been screaming all the way there behind them, and uh, I, I just don't think that Sarah knew about this. But imagine what this would do to her when she found out that her son had been killed. I mean, it would just rip her heart out after she had waited 90 years to have him. So it takes great faith to be obedient to God when, especially when unexplained suffering is involved. Some of you know that, don't you? It takes great faith. We don't always have explanations given to us. However, we have to go back to the fact that Abraham had spent 55 years with God, walking with God, and in that time, he had learned a great deal about the person of God. He had learned that he could trust him no matter what 
he requested of him. He had learned that suffering in the will of God brings ultimately blessing. And even, ultimately, it brings pleasure. After all, the greatest blessing and the greatest pleasure is what? Is given to us by salvation. That's the greatest blessing of all. And ultimately, that's going to be our greatest pleasure when we're in heaven forever. And did salvation require great suffering? Of course it did. It required the greatest suffering ever endured, the suffering of the God-man on the cross at Calvary. Abraham had also learned that God would keep his promise, his, his word, no matter what. So Abraham, you see, seeing no other solution, believed that God would yet fulfill his promises regarding Isaac, even if he went ahead and obeyed God and slayed his son. Even though there had never, ever been, before this time, there had never been any previous resurrection from the dead. No one had ever died and gotten back up again. Yet we are told in the book of Hebrews, in eleven nineteen, that Abraham believed that God was able to raise Isaac up, even from the dead. There was no resurrection from the dead before this. Yet, Abraham had seen how God had been perfectly capable of bringing life out of death, hadn't he? Think about it. He, in a way, had seen, had even experienced a resurrection from death when he, when God gave Isaac to both he and Sarah, even though they were both as good as dead in their bodies. They were both as good as dead, reproductively speaking. So great faith, you see, does not demand answers and explanations from God. Rather, great faith looks back on what God has done in the past. That's why we need the Old Testament, to see what God has done and to know what God can do in the future. If he can do these things in, in the Old Testament people's lives, he can do them in ours. He's Remember, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? Is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? No. So great faith rests in the person of God himself and in his power. See, Abraham had experienced God's power when he gave them this miracle-born son. And great faith also rests in God's promises. So God's person, God's power, and God's promises. And we don't need to demand answers and explanations. We just need to rest in God. Well, so although there were many unanswered questions, Abraham rose early the next day. If he was going to do it, he was going to do it right away. You know, remember we talked about how delay will kill your will. So he did it immediately the next day. He rose up and he saddled up his donkey. And we think because of his age that Abraham probably rode the donkey while Isaac and the two young men or the two young servants that they brought along with them they walked. This is the end. two servants or the two young men were probably brought along to help carry the split wood. You know, they would need wood for the fire on the altar and also um, to carry the fire. 
We learn about that in verse 6. And also to watch the donkey while Abraham and Isaac then left a certain spot, you know, when they got to the foot of the mountain and then Abraham and Isaac would descend up to the mountain. They left the two servants below to watch their supplies and to watch the donkey. Because, of course, it took them three days to get there, so they had to carry food and everything with them too. So the servants stayed behind while they went ahead to um, actually offer the sacrifice. All right, that's the uh, preparations. Let's look now at the place. Verses, the rest of verse 3 and then verse 4. It says, uh, And he rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. What was place was that? We look back at verse 2, and it was the land of Moriah. And then it says in verse 4, Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place where? Afar off. It was during the time of God's original command to Abraham back in verse 2 that we learned that he was to go into the land of Moriah. Now, from where he had been living down in the land of the Philistines, this was a, well, it was a full two days walk and part of a third day. They estimate it was about 60 miles. And during those three days, what do you think was heavy, heavy on Abraham's mind? The whole time there walking along and he's riding on the donkey if that's what the case was i mean after all he was an old man by this time very old the whole time his mind was heavy with the purpose of his mission i mean he was when he got to his destination he was going to have to kill his son his dearly beloved only son so for those three days isaac was dead already in the mind of abraham Now, those three days in which Abraham was centering on the death of his son also represent a picture of the three days when the Lord Jesus' body lay dead in the tomb. Now, the name Moriah, as I've already told you, means in Hebrew, clear vision. The land of Moriah was the region of Canaan, or Israel, where one day the city of Jerusalem was built. Now, Jerusalem, you know, I hope, is located on the mountain of Moriah. And it can be clearly seen if anybody approaches Jerusalem from any direction. It's amazing. It just stands up like on a plateau. You can see Jerusalem for miles and miles as you're coming into it from the north, south, east, or west. It is definitely clearly visible. <laughs> Mount Moriah, clear vision. Now, the name Moriah only appears one other time in all of the Word of God, and that is in 2 Chronicles 3.1. 2 Chronicles 3.1. And there we learn that it was on Mount Moriah that King Solomon built the temple. You see, God... God knew all this, didn't he? He knew where Jerusalem would be built, and he knew where the temple would be built because he was the one that picked all that out, of course. But he was purposely asking Abraham to travel three days to offer up Isaac as a burnt offering in the very place where his temple was to be built and where many, many sacrifices would likewise be offered. Now, both Abraham's only begotten son, Isaac, and all of those sacrificed animals offered on the altar of the temple, 
both of those, Isaac and the animals, served as types and shadows of what? Right, the great once-for-all sacrifice of God's only begotten beloved Son, the Lord Jesus, who likewise was offered in the land of Moriah. Because Calvary, you see, is in this land of clear vision, Moriah. So isn't that a great name, the land of Moriah, clear vision? It's a great name because of the fact that geographically you can see the mountain on which Jerusalem and the temple are located for, you know, miles and miles. You can see it. It's clearly visible to all who approach the city. It's also a great name because all that occurred there in the way of offered sacrifices, whether Isaac or the animals, was giving clear vision of the one who would die there for the sins of the world. Calvary was in the land of Moriah, the land of clear vision. See, if you really have clear vision, you have eyes that see the cross, don't you? And understand with spiritual eyes what took place there, that Christ died for your sins so that you, if you believe in him, can spend eternity in heaven where you will really have clear vision. So anyway, on, on his third day of traveling, we are told in verse 4 that Abraham approached Mount Moriah uh, from the south, of course, and what did he do? He lifted up his eyes and he saw the place afar off. Now, we keep getting in all these little rabbit trails, but I hate to not tell you about them because to me they're so exciting. The little phrase, lifted up his eyes is always an indication in the book of Genesis of a significant look. Let's see if I have this. I forgot to put that up there. Take a quick look at that and then let me get to the one I'm supposed to be on. If we go back through the book of Genesis and look at some of the times we've seen the little phrase, lifted up his eyes, or, or um, what's the other one? Lifted up his eyes or looked up, something like that, we'll find really the story, the progressive story of redemption. Neat. It's really neat. All right, the first use of this little phrase was when Lot lifted up his eyes and he looked at Sodom. So it was a lifting up to behold Sodom. Sodom represents what? The world represents the world. We are all born sinners. We're all born with our focus on what? The world. All right, the second lifting up was in um, Genesis 13:14, and it was a looking up to behold the promised land. To, that's when Abraham was told to lift up his eyes and look in all directions and behold the promised land. The third lifting up was in Genesis 18.2. That was a lifting up of the eyes to behold the Lord himself as he came down from heaven to earth to meet with man. That's when Abraham was sitting at the door of his tent, lifted up his eyes, and he saw the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ who had come to meet with him. That speaks of when Christ came to earth to meet with man. The fourth lifting up of the eyes is what we have right here in 22, verse 4, and it was a lifting up of the eyes to behold the place of sacrifice, the place of clear vision, 
where the Lord would one day hang on an old rugged cross to die for man's sins. You know when the fifth lifting up of the eyes occurs in the book of Genesis and also the sixth, the fifth and the sixth occur side by side in Genesis 24, oops, that's wrong, 63 and 64. And that is when Isaac, the son, looked up and beheld the approach of Rebekah. And she, in verse 64, likewise lifted up her eyes to behold Isaac. That account is the magnificent picture of Christ beholding the arrival of his bride, the church, and the church, represented by Rebecca, beholding for the first time her bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. It's beautiful. Don't you think that was worth a little rabbit trail? (laughs) So the place which Abraham's eyes looked upon was the place where God himself, in the person of his son, would in another 2,000 years... It would be 2,000 years from where Abraham was, but in another 2,000 years, he would be the Lamb of God, sacrificed for the sins of the world. Now, the wording of this verse, where it says that he lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off, that wording, the place afar off, might remind us of Hebrews 11:13, where it speaks of all the men and all the women of faith in the Old Testament. Men like Abraham and Sarah, men and women like Abraham and Sarah, who died before they actually saw the fulfillment of God's promises. I mean, they looked forward to the Redeemer coming, but they never saw the fulfillment of that. It tells us in Hebrews eleven thirteen that they, with eyes of faith, they saw these things from afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them. So that's what that reminds us of. Okay, we've looked at the preparations in the place. Let's look now at the parting. Verses 5 and 6. It says, And Abraham said unto his young men, these are the two servants that went with them, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. Well, Abraham here tells the two servants to stay behind with the donkey. He says that he and Isaac would go forth, and what would they do? They would worship. We'll talk about that. That's the first time that word appears in the Bible. The first time the word worship appears in the Bible. Now, think about this. Why did the servants stay behind? Well, for one thing, to watch the animals and everything that they had carried with them. But if the servants had gone with them, they very well would have probably tried to prevent Abraham from binding his son and putting him on the altar and killing him. I mean, they would have thought that this old man definitely had lost his mind. He was suffering from Alzheimer's or something. And they, they would know that if they rescued Isaac and took him back to Sarah, that she would be very, very grateful, and they would probably put Abraham in a retirement home somewhere. <laughs> but anyway, so they didn't, he did not take them. He told them to stay behind. Now, there are several interesting things about verse 5. For the first time, as I said, we see the word worship appears, and it literally means, the word worship used here, literally means to bow down. Now, 
we know that there have been many occasions of worship which have already taken place in the book of Genesis, right? I mean, many people already have worshipped God. But yet this is the first time this word is actually used. Now, why, we might wonder, would the first use of this import, use of this important word be used with regard to Abraham killing and sacrificing his own dearly beloved son? Why? Well, because this is the ultimate in worship. It was a supreme act of worship for Abraham and Isaac because Isaac eventually knew what was going on, for both of them to willingly bow down in submissive obedience to God's will, even when no explanations were given to satisfy their questions. You see, to worship God is to bow down to his will, understanding, you know, even if you don't understand some of the reasons, just simply understanding that his way is the best way even if it involves suffering or waiting or even dying. Just understanding, bowing down before him, understanding that he will always do what is right and good. In what Abraham and Isaac were going to do, we indeed have the most beautiful example of true worship. Aside from Christ's own willing uh, submission, to, to his father. But other than that, we have the most supreme human example of true worship in all of the Bible. Now, a second very fascinating feature of verse 5 is found in Abraham's words to those two servants. He said, I and the lad will go yonder and what? And come again to you. Who is going to come again? He and the lad. This is one of the greatest statements of faith in Abraham in all of Abraham's life. One of the greatest, well, probably the greatest statement of faith that he made in all of his life. Because he actually believed that both he, he wasn't lying here. He actually believed that both he and Isaac would return to those two servants. Even though God had told him to slay Isaac, and even though Abraham had every intention of actually doing that. He was going to go and kill his son. Yet he also believed that God would fulfill his promises regarding Isaac. So Abraham knew that Isaac had to live. And so the only uh, solution to this dilemma was that even if he was killed, God would have to raise him back to life. And that's exactly what we are told, you know, in Hebrews, that Abraham, by faith, accounted that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. That last part of um, <clears throat> Hebrews eleven nineteen tells us again that this, this isn't just speculation. When I say that Isaac is a figure or a picture or a type of Christ, it tells us right there in Hebrews eleven nineteen that he is a figure of Christ. Well, in verse um, 6, we find that Abraham took the split wood, and what did he do with it now? He laid it upon Isaac, his son. The load of wood carried up a mountain would have been a very difficult task for Isaac if he was merely a lad. Well, actually, I guess I should still have that up there. 
I like this picture a whole lot because it has Isaac pictured correctly, you know, not just a young child. Um, you know, it would have been very difficult for a child to have walked 60 miles and then to be given the difficult task of carrying a big load of, of wood up a mountain. But most picture books that you will look at, and be careful of this when you're reading with your children or your grandchildren, tell them that that's not accurate when they've got Isaac as a little boy. And it's important that we know he wasn't a little boy because his submission is very important here. Um, but I know it says the word lad, it uses the word lad, but uh, the word lad can be, can be used in the Hebrew. It's used from anyone from a young man um, not, yeah, a young man all the way to a, an older man. In fact, it was used of Benjamin, you know, the 12 sons of Jacob. It was used of Benjamin. He was called a lad even though he had 10 sons of his own. So you can't just say because it uses the word lad that it speaks of a child. So I want to talk for a minute about his, um, his age here. We are told... In verse one of chapter twenty-three, go to the very next chapter, verse twenty-three, uh, chapter twenty-three, verse one, that Sarah was hundred and twenty-seven years old when she died. Now she dies in the very next chapter. That would mean that when Sarah died, her son Isaac was thirty-seven years old, and she dies in the next chapter. So, like the Lord Jesus. Well, you know, so we've got a number of reasons. First of all, the Lord Lad can speak of, you know, a young man just as well as an older man. Doesn't have to speak of a child. We also have the fact that he carried the wood. Now, you can't picture Abraham putting a load of heavy wood on a little boy. We also have the fact that he's walked three days, all right? Um, and now we have this age reference to Sarah being 127 years old, which would put Isaac at, a, at 37 when she died. So very, very possibly, just like the Lord Jesus, who was in the prime of his life when he bore his load of wood, you know, when he bore the crossbeam for his own cross and went forth unto a place called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, Isaac, I would speculate, was in his early 30s, if not exactly 33 years old. Now, that's purely speculation, but I wouldn't be surprised if at the time of this event, Isaac was about 33 years old, and four years later, his mother died. Since Isaac gives us such a beautiful picture of Christ, not only in this account, but we're going to see it over and over again throughout his life, um, it's not really unreasonable to think of him as being 33 years old at the time of Genesis 22. Now this, you see, makes his quiet submission and his non-resistance to his elderly father, this makes it um, very, very commendable. Because if he is an, a man in his early 30s, he could have easily... Um, prevented his old father from binding him and putting him on the altar. 
his faith in his father, whom he trusted because he knew how much his father knew and trusted God, is so highly commendable here that if Abraham was not the focus of this story, Isaac would really be the hero. You know, too little really is generally said about Isaac's worship. You know, the fact that Isaac was willing to bow down in this scene. And I think the reason for that is generally because he is made out to be far younger than he really was. I think the the reason people don't focus on Isaac's faith in willingly laying down his life in obedience to God is because they portray him as a child who had no choice in the matter. You see what I'm getting at? So it's important to, um, to, to figure out his age. Now, another aspect of the crucifixion of Christ that is pictured in the account of Abraham and Isaac has to do with the privacy of their act. <clears throat> I already mentioned that they departed from the two servants, okay? They left them behind. Actually, we are told twice in verse 6 and again in verse 8, we are told twice that Abraham and Isaac went both of them together. Now, this privacy of just the father and the son alone together foreshadows the three hours of darkness which uh, overcame the land. You remember when the Lord was hanging on the cross? Those three hours of great darkness. That darkness shut out all of the spectators. Nobody could really see what was going on between God the Father who was dealing privately with his sacrifice of God the Son. Even the two thieves on either side of the Lord, just as with the two young men, the two servants carried along with Abraham, they were cut off from witnessing what actually took place alone between God the Father and God the Son during those three hours of darkness. No human eyes were allowed to behold that scene. I mean, that was truly a time of... uh, They were not allowed to tread on holy ground there when Christ literally became sin for us and he suffered an eternity of hell in our place. So Isaac went forth to the place of clear vision under the load of the wood which he himself bore, the wood upon which he would be laid as a sacrifice to God. Abraham went uh, forth to the place of clear vision, and what did he carry with him? Abraham was carrying, I mean, Isaac was carrying the wood on his back. What was Abraham carrying? Right, it says that he took the fire, you can see it in this picture here. Again, I like this picture because he's carrying the knife and he's carrying the pot of fire. You know, they weren't going to sit there and rub two sticks together and they didn't have matches, so when they went to an altar, they carried a pot of fire with them from a previous fire. And so he's carrying the knife and the fire in his hands. Now, those two items must have been very heavy in this old man's hands, not because of their weight so much as because of their significance. I mean, he knew what he was going to do with that fire and that knife. The fire and the knife both speak of God's holy judgment against sin. And these were also pictured on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were pictured on the cross uh, by the Lord's thirst. 
You know, the fire of God's judgment upon him made him cry out, I thirst. So the fire is represented by his thirst. And what do you think the knife is represented by? Right, the spear which was thrust into his side in John 19.34. Truly, really, though, the most amazing information about this episode, this whole episode, is the non-questioning behavior of Abraham and the non-questioning, non-resisting behavior of his son Isaac. Between the father and his son, there was perfect agreement, perfect unity. We'll see this even next week. I'm jumping the gun, but you know that when Isaac finds out that he is to be the sacrifice, still there is perfect understanding between the father and the son, and there is perfect unity. There is no resistance offered by the son against the father. And again, this gives us a perfect picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, you know, not my will be done, but thine will be done. And it says they both went, and they went both of them together. Twice we're told that about Abraham and Isaac. And they went both of them together to the place of sacrifice. Perfect picture of God the Father and God the Son both willingly going together to the place of Calvary where we are given clear vision of the whole redemptive plan. It's a beautiful story, and it doesn't end here. It gets even more beautiful, doesn't it? So you'll have to come back next week to hear the rest of the story as we look at the problem, the prediction, the proof, the prevention, the provision, and the praise. When I close in prayer, do you have a song or are we just dismissed?